Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Chapter 11 of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, February 2008 Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. By Harriet Jacobs. Written under the pseudonym, Linda Brent. Chapter 11 the new tie to life. I returned to my good grandmother's house. She had an interview with Mr. Sands. When she asked him why he could not have left her one ewe lamb, whether there was not plenty of slaves who did not care about character, he made no answer, but he spoke kind and encouraging words. He promised to care for my child, and to buy me, be the conditions what they might. I had not seen Dr. Flint for five days. I had never seen him since I made the avowal to him. He talked of the disgrace I had brought on myself, how I had sinned against my master, and mortified my old grandmother. He intimated that if I had accepted his proposals, he, as a physician, could have saved me from exposure. He even condescended to pity me. Could he have offered wormwood more bitter? He whose persecutions had been the cause of my sin. "'Linda,' said he, "'though you have been criminal towards me, I feel for you, and I can pardon you if you obey my wishes. Tell me whether the fellow you wanted to marry is the father of your child. If you deceive me, you shall feel the fires of hell." I did not feel as proud as I had done. My strongest weapon with him was gone. I was lowered in my own estimation, and had resolved to bear his abuse in silence. But when he spoke contemptuously of the lover who had always treated me honourably, when I remembered that but for him I might have been a virtuous, free, and happy wife, I lost my patience. I have sinned against God and myself, I replied, but not against you. He clenched his teeth and muttered, Curse you! He came towards me with ill-suppressed rage, and exclaimed, You obstinate girl! I could grind your bones to powder! You have thrown yourself away on some worthless rascal! You are weak-minded, and have been easily persuaded by those who don't care a straw for you. The future will settle accounts between us. You are blinded now. But hereafter you will be convinced that your master was your best friend. My lenity towards you is proof of it. I might have punished you in many ways. I might have whipped till you fell dead under the lash. But I wanted you to live. I would have bettered your condition. Others cannot do it. You are my slave. Your mistress, disgusted by your conduct, forbids you to return to the house. Therefore I leave you here for the present. But I shall see you often. I will call to-morrow." He came with frowning brows, that showed a dissatisfied state of mine. After asking about my health, he inquired whether my board was paid, and who visited me. He then went on to say that he had neglected his duty, that as a physician there were certain things that he ought to have explained to me. Then followed talk such as would have made the most shameless blush. He ordered me to stand up before him. I obeyed. "'I command you,' said he, "'to tell me whether the father of your child is white or black.' I hesitated. 
Answer me this instant! he exclaimed. I did answer. He sprang upon me like a wolf, and grabbed my arm as if he would have broken it. Do you love him? he said, in a hissing tone. I am thankful that I do not despise him, I replied. He raised his hand to strike me, but it fell again. I don't know what arrested the blow. He sat down with lips tightly compressed. At last he spoke. I came here, said he, to make you a friendly proposition. But your ingratitude chafes me beyond endurance. You turn aside all my good intentions towards you. I don't know what it is that keeps me from killing you." Again he rose, as if he had a mind to strike me. But he resumed. On one condition I will forgive your insolence and crime. You must henceforth have no communication of any kind with the father of your child. You must not ask anything from him, or receive anything from him. I will take care of you and your child. You had better promise this at once, and not wait till you are deserted by him. This is the last act of mercy I shall show towards you." I said something about being unwilling to have my child supported by a man who had cursed it, and me also. He rejoined that a woman who had sunk to my level had no right to expect anything else. He asked for the last time, would I accept his kindness? I answered that I would not. "'Very well,' said he. Then take the consequences of your wayward course. Never look to me for help. You are my slave, and shall always be my slave. I will never sell you. That you may depend upon." Hope died away in my heart as he closed the door after him. I had calculated that in his rage he would sell me to a slave-trader, and I knew the father of my child was on the watch to buy me. About this time my uncle Philip was expected to return from a voyage. The day before his departure I had officiated as bridesmaid to a young friend. My heart was then ill at ease, but my smiling countenance did not betray it. Only a year had passed, but what fearful changes it had wrought! My heart had grown grey in misery. Lives that flash in sunshine, and lives that are born in tears, receive their hue from circumstances. None of us know what a year may bring forth. I felt no joy when they told me my uncle had come. He wanted to see me though he knew what had happened. I shrank from him at first. But at last consented that he should come to my room. He received me as he had always done. Oh, how my heart smote me when I felt his tears on my burning cheeks! The words of my grandmother came to my mind. Perhaps your mother and father are taken from the evil days to come. My disappointed heart could now praise God that it was so. But why, thought I, did my relatives ever cherish hopes for me? What was there to save me from the usual fate of slave-girls? Many more beautiful and more intelligent than I had experienced a similar fate, or a far worse one. How could they hope that I should escape? My uncle's stay was short, and I was not sorry for it. I was too ill in mind and body to enjoy my friends as I had done. For some weeks I was unable to leave my bed. I could not have any doctor but my master, and I would not have him sent for. At last, alarmed by my increasing illness, they sent for him. I was very weak and nervous, and as soon as he entered the room, I began to scream. They told him my state was very critical. He had no wish to hasten me out of the world, and he withdrew. When my babe was born, they said it was premature. It weighed only four pounds. But God let it live. I heard the doctor say I could not survive till morning. I had often prayed for death. But now I did not want to die, unless my child could die too. Many weeks passed before I was able to leave my bed. I was a mere wreck of my former self. 
For a year there was scarcely a day when I was free from chills and fever. My babe was also sickly. His little limbs were often racked with pain. Dr. Flint continued his visits to look after my health, and he did not fail to remind me that my child was an addition to his stock of slaves. I felt too feeble to dispute with him, and listened to his remarks in silence. His visits were less frequent, but his busy spirit could not remain quiet. He employed my brother in his office, and he was made the medium of frequent notes and messages to me. William was a bright lad, and of much use to the doctor. He had learned to put up medicines, to leech, cup, and bleed. He had taught himself to read and spell. I was proud of my brother, and the old doctor suspected as much. One day, when I had not seen him for several weeks, I heard his steps approaching the door. I dreaded the encounter, and hid myself. He inquired for me, of course, but I was nowhere to be found. He went to his office and dispatched William with a note. The colour mounted to my brother's face when he gave it to me, and he said, "'Don't you hate me, Linda, for bringing you these things?' I told him I could not blame him. He was a slave, and obliged to obey his master's will. The note ordered me to come to his office. I went. He demanded to know where I was when he called. I told him I was at home. He flew into a passion, and said he knew better. Then he launched out upon his usual themes, my crimes against him, and my ingratitude for his forbearance. The laws were laid down to me anew, and I was dismissed. I felt humiliated that my brother should stand by and listen to such language as would be addressed only to a slave. Poor boy! He was powerless to defend me. But I saw the tears which he vainly strove to keep back. The manifestation of feeling irritated the doctor. William could do nothing to please him. One morning he did not arrive at the office so early as usual, and that circumstance afforded his master an opportunity to vent his spleen. He was put in jail. The next day my brother sent a trader to the doctor, with a request to be sold. His master was greatly incensed at what he called his insolence. He said he had put him there, to reflect upon his bad conduct, and he certainly was not giving any evidence of repentance. For two days he harassed himself to find somebody to do his office work, but everything went wrong without William. He was released, and ordered to take his old stand, with many threats, if he was not careful about his future behaviour. As the months passed on, my boy improved in health. When he was a year old, they called him beautiful. The little vine was taking deep root in my existence, though its clinging fondness excited a mixture of love and pain. When I was most sorely oppressed, I found a solace in his smiles. I loved to watch his infant slumbers. But always there was a dark cloud over my enjoyment. I could never forget that he was a slave. Sometimes I wished that he might die in infancy. God tried me. My darling became very ill. The bright eyes grew dull, and the little feet and hands were so icy cold, that I thought death had already touched them. I had prayed for his death but never so earnestly as I now prayed for his life. And my prayer was heard. Alas! what mockery it is for a slave-mother to try to pray back her dying child to life! Death is better than slavery. It was a sad thought that I had no name to give my child. His father caressed him and treated him kindly, whenever he had a chance to see him. He was not unwilling that he should bear his name, but he had no legal claim to it. And if I had bestowed it upon him— my master would have regarded it as a new crime, a new piece of insolence, and would perhaps revenge it on the boy. Oh, the serpent of slavery has many and poisonous fangs! End of chapter 11
Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.